business over there. All right. Let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to the book of the Psalms once again, and we are in Psalm 34. We're going to take up where we left off the last time. If you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 34 is entitled of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear Yahweh, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. So when we we began our look at at this psalm last week. You may remember, those of you that were here anyway, uh, you will remember that we referred back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Because in 1 Samuel 21, David is fleeing Saul. He's uh, gathered around him a small group of soldiers and, and apparently some others as well. That number is going to grow in days to come, but now it's a small group. And he's fleeing Uh, from Saul, and of all things, he flees to the land of the Philistines, to the city of Gath. And Gath is the hometown of the big man on campus, Goliath. So David shows up in the hometown of the champion of the Philistines, whom he had killed and beheaded and ask for refuge. It's one of the more bizarre things that David does in his life. 
Uh, I think we mentioned when we first went through that passage, I, I have to think that he must have left Goliath's sword out with his little group outside of town. Can you imagine walking into Gath with Goliath's sword? <laughs> I don't think David would have done that. But anyway, um, here's the situation. And it doesn't really tell us about his mindset when he does this. It just recounts that he does it. But you have to wonder, is he really thinking the Philistines are going to go, hey, buddy, it's great to see you. Glad you've come around. I, I don't know. Maybe he just thought it was going to be so outlandish that they would assume that he was defecting from Israel and, and Saul would never think to go look there. So maybe that seemed to him to be wise. Well, it wasn't wise. Even if Abimelech had been somewhat tempted to even think that way at all, his servants sure weren't. They were like, this, what are we doing? This guy is the one who's been slaughtering us on the battlefield. What? And they take him, they arrest him. And so David then, uh, seeing that the jig was up, decides to pretend that he is a madman. And he starts slobbering down his beard. It's that mental image. And just gibbering away with all kinds of nonsense and scratching things on the doorposts of the gates. And Abimelech just goes, this guy has lost it. I have enough crazy people around here. I don't need him. Get him out of here. And David escapes. And that's the story. And when you look at that, you think, what am I supposed to learn from this? What lessons are there? But remember, we're trying to get at understanding in this life of David's study that we're doing to get a, 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 a full of, of an understanding as possible of what made him tick in the presence of the Almighty God. And I'm very thankful that in God's providence and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that David, though we don't have in the actual account of his going there, we don't have any details about what he was thinking, we can see in the Psalms very much what he was thinking after the event. He doesn't describe too much. You have to kind of infer a little bit from what he's read, what he's written about what he might have been thinking before. But David is definitely uh, not embarrassed or too ashamed to say, this is what I've learned. And so we looked at the, the one psalm, Psalm 56, where David just pours out his understanding that though he had clearly been trusting his own wit and wisdom to try to deal with with uh, this situation he's finding himself in with Saul. It didn't work. He acknowledges that. And in Psalm 56, he is urges the people of God not to trust their own wisdom, not to trust their own agendas, not to trust their own strength, but to trust completely and wholly in the covenant God of Israel. So we spent some time looking at that. In the midst of trouble, you must trust Yahweh. In, verse, in, uh, in Psalm 34, which we just read, the, the other psalm that was written during this time, and we know this because of the titles, 
Both of them have titles that tell us that's when he wrote these. It's a shift from, uh, the trust is still there, absolutely. But the shift uh, goes dramatically to praise. And so, in my mind, even though in the order of the Psalms, as we have them printed here, 34 comes first, and 56 comes later, um, whoever edited the, the Psalter way back when, put them, grouped them as they will. But I kind of think that 34 was probably, was certainly written after he made his escape, as he is praising the Lord uh, dramatically, and praising him with this emphasis upon reverencing him or fearing him because Yahweh has delivered him from this incredible circumstance where David had really painted himself into a corner and Yahweh extracted him from it. Talk more about that as we go along. But throughout this psalm, David tells us various reasons why you should be reverencing him, why you should fear him. And we looked at a couple of these last week, and we're going to finish this up now, God willing, today. Last time, we looked at verses 4 and 5. By the way, 1 through 3 is the introduction to all of this. And in this introduction, 1 through 3, he's calling everyone to praise. And it's, it's a thorough call to praise. That it is to be a continual praise. It is to be confident. It's to be a corporate thing, all of us together, magnifying, showing forth the greatness of God. And then he goes on from verses 4 on to talk about various aspects of that greatness, why he's worthy of that praise, why he's worthy of reverence. And this, this portion, verses 4 through 22, or, uh, uh, yeah, 20, yeah, 22. Um, it's arranged at least loosely in a chiastic fashion so that you have companion passages at the beginning and end, and it works its way into the heart of it in the middle. So we looked at 4 and 5 and 19 and 22, those verses, and noted there the emphasis upon God's absolute deliverance that when God saves His people, He doesn't do it by halves. It's thorough. It's complete. There's nothing left undone. Over and over and over again in these two sections, you see the all, never, not one, none. Over and over again, these absolutes in relationship to the work of God in delivering His people. His greatness has no limitations. No matter how great your afflictions are, his power is greater. He doesn't spare in his deliverance. In fact, we saw in those passages before, you go from being crushed, to use the, his term, to radiant, which is just flowing out, is the idea there. Without confusion, without disgrace, what an amazing thing. Only God can do that. He is worthy of our reverence. He is worthy of our fear. This is beyond our comprehension that he can deliver us so thoroughly. And included in this passage of thorough and absolute deliverance is this marvelous messianic prophecy fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ that not one of his bones would be broken. 
uh, that uh, it, it gets invoked in the Gospels. Absolute deliverance is worthy of his reverence, worthy of, his, of, of fearing him. And then we also looked at the next section in verses 6 and 8 and 17 and 18, which focus upon the Lord's eagerness towards you to hear, uh, to, to be present with you, hearing you in your, we talked about distress and in your weakness and in your vulnerability. He's ready there in those verses, uh, even providing his angel, it says, and camping around. And we noted that it could be just general angelic ministering spirits, or it could also be a foreshadowing of the great Savior, our shepherd, who enfolds us in his arms, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps. But in any case, we noted that God is not an absentee guardian. He is with us and is ready to hear us. And he does this because he is good. And that's where we finished up last time. So now we'll move a little bit closer into the middle and look at verses 9 and 10, and then also verses 15 and 16. In 9 and 10 we read, O fear Yahweh, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. And then 15 and 16, the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. We reverence him because of his deliverance. We reverence him because of his ready presence and willingness to attend to us even when we are at our weakest and most despicable, our Lord uh, is ready to hear us. And so we fear him for that. We, in the, term, in the sense of reverencing him. And we reverence him also then in these passages, in these two uh, sections. The emphasis is upon his provision. His provision. There are many things in this life that we could look at and, and say, I really lack in that area. For some, it might be physical strength. For some, it might be health. It might be finances. It might be relational uh, loss. It might be the loss of, uh, not just in relationships, but complete loss as, uh, as loved ones pass away uh, any number of things like that the list could go on and on about the things that bring us pain and sorrow and suffering and yet the Lord provides for us in spite of what looks like often hopeless situations he provides for us first of all 9 and 10 he provides for us completely completely there's no lack, and there's another absolute there for you. No lack for those who fear him. Those who seek him. And we talked about seeking before. Remember of inquiring after him, consulting after him, gazing at him with wonder and a desire to know. Those who seek after Yahweh will never be disappointed. He promises that those who seek him will ever surely find him. And he holds nothing back. 
He completely provides for us. That is worthy of our reverence. And He doesn't do it in a begrudging way. Verses 15 and 16 make that really clear. There's, there's justice in these verses, but did you catch how Yahweh's actions are described there? His eyes are toward the righteous. In other words, He provides for you not just out of a sense of grudging obligation, but eagerly. Eagerly. Toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. By contrast, the face of Yahweh is against those who are doing evil. He's in opposition to them. If you're walking uh, uh, evilly before God, and whether it's outwardly obvious or hidden within your heart, you can't expect His blessing. He is, his eyes are against you when you are in that condition. The common idea in the world around us that, you know, God's just... Uh, it doesn't matter what you do. He's just, he just loves everybody. Is false. It's foreign to the Scriptures. God is in opposition to those who are walking wickedly before Him. But to those whom He has called and to those who are, who are longing after Him, seeking after Him, His eyes are looking that way. So when it says His eyes and His ears are toward us, I mean, that's, there's a visual image there, right? Of If you want to hear... Um, well, you can see this a lot on Zoom calls. <laughs> when people are trying to hear somebody because somebody's got some audio issue on their end, you know, I don't know how many I don't know how many times I spend time looking at somebody's ear in a Zoom call because they're they're trying to hear what's going on. But that's kind of the idea. The ear is turned. The eyes are, are turned. You know, when you have a conversation with somebody. And they're all looking off over here. Now, sometimes we do that because we're, we're trying to think and put our thoughts together and then we come back. But it really drives us. And we put up with that. That's fine. But it drives us crazy if we have a conversation and people just looking down here. If I just looked right over the top of your head and not really meeting your eyes, give me about 30 seconds and you're going to be going to try to interrupt that, that plane of sight, right? It, because we want to have that connection. And our God gazes us just as we gaze at Him to consider His eyes are toward us when we are His children and we're reverencing Him and seeking Him. It's eagerness. That is worthy of reverence. Because what that says is He's absolutely, absolutely... Um, I'm going to use this phrase and I'm going to qualify it. For us. It's not that he's on our team. We're supposed to be on his team, okay? If you want to use that kind of terminology. But he loves his children. He, let me say it this way. He respects his children enough to really pay attention. And that's worth reverencing him for. So, deliverance. Presence, provision, all of these things 
are reasons that David cites for reverencing the Lord. Particularly in the context he's just come out of. He's been delivered from a dangerous situation. In his heart, uh, I suspect, that we don't have it uh, uh, written down that way in 1 Samuel. In his heart, if he's anything like the rest of us, when we get into situations like that, in our, in our hearts and minds, we're going, oh Lord, please help. And the Lord heard him. And then provided for what David needed. The deliverance, the safety, the Lord was paying. Uh, do you remember when uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and he's making fun of the prophets of Baal because uh, their, their God is not answering. He's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's indisposed, you know, and he's just really mocking. Our God's never on a journey away from us. He's never indisposed. His eyes are fixed upon his children. And that should cause us to rejoice and just reverence him because do we deserve that kind of attention? Absolutely not. And yet for the sake of his glory and the sake of his son, that's what he does. So we reverence him. Well, okay, then we come to the heart of this and there's a change in verses 11 through 14. Because up to this point, after the initial call to worship, everything else to this point, at the beginning of this and at the end of this, has all been focused upon what God does and what God, how God is answered. And, and then right in the middle of this, it shifts and he says, now let me tell you about the fear of God. I'm going to teach you what it means to truly fear Him. Again, when we talked about this initially, we noted that for many people, many believers don't, it's just kind of uncomfortable with the idea of fearing God because we have been conditioned by our rather soft, theologically soft generation in which we live that, you know, God is just good and He's love and He doesn't condemn and we don't like this idea of fearing him. It's just uncomfortable. And yet God is not tame. He is not condensed into uh, the Reader's Digest form that we want for easy consumption. He's beyond all of that. And while we do love Him, and clearly in His tenderness as our Father, he provides for us. He does all of these things and shows mercy to us. Yet at the same time, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what does this reverence look like? David, as he's reflecting, what, what, what is... <laughs> you can almost see David sitting there going, what have I learned from this experience? If I'm going to properly fear God, what... What is going to be characteristic of the way that I live? And in essence, David here is giving the application of all that he said, the implications. What, what comes out in my life as a result of walking in fear before a holy God? And I think that these verses, 11 through 14, could be summed up with uh, the idea of reverencing him in holiness. Now I get this holiness basically uh, from 
taking a cue from verse 9. And anybody know why I get from verse 9? Where would I get holiness out of verse 9? Don't often ask for an audible on Sunday morning, but if anybody wants to give it a try, what do you think? There's a certain word that suggests holiness. Yeah, saints, I heard somebody whisper, boldly whisper. Yes, word saints, the word saints. Those who are holy, those who are set aside to him, sanctified and set apart. So that helped me look at this center section and think, all right, the things that are here are all within the context of holiness, being set apart unto him. And it begins with humility, holy humility. And actually, we can look at verse 2 and see that uh, right off the bat. Let the humble hear and be glad. But uh, here in the center of this, it's suggested by come, O children, and listen to me. Interesting, David is he's writing to his people, his followers, perhaps, this small group. Eventually, these would be kind of spread throughout the nation. But David's a young man. Um, guy my age, you might expect, going, oh, okay, children. <laughs> but for him, um, he's, uh, he's still a very young man. And he's not being cocky or arrogant here. But I think he's suggesting to those to whom he's writing of something of what their attitude should be as they receive his instruction. And particularly in light of the humble being, uh, of hearing and being glad. So as we come to him, our, our holiness should, there should be a holiness being set apart to him in humility. And then he carries that on as he says, I will teach you the fear of Yahweh this really is the whole summation of what righteousness and holiness is, is to walk in the holy fear and reverence of God. It's, a, it's holy because it's set apart. It is not like the fear of anyone or anything else. Because he's not like anyone or anything else. He is something holy other than us. And so... You can say, well, you mind your P's and Q's in his presence, if you want to put it that way. But in your fear and your reverence before him, it makes a change in what you say to each other and to him. It makes a difference in how you act before each other and before him. If you truly fear him, you will seek to do those things that bring glory to him and not yourself. If you truly reverence him, you will seek out his will and, and desires for your life and not insist upon your own way. And on and on I could go. Verse 13 is an interesting one. I've wrestled with, I, I wrestle with verse 13 more than any other verse in this because it says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Why do you think I struggled with that? Yeah. 
Remember the story in 1 Samuel 21. What does David do to get himself out of the situation? He lies. So, all right, David. <laughs> uh, holiness before God. You're in fear of God. Telling us all, don't be deceitful. And uh, you use deceit to get out of the problem because you were desperate. You were foolish. You again painted yourself in a corner. You don't know what to. I don't know what to do. Thinking on the fly. His first thing was to act like a madman. And just because it works is no justification for doing something like that. So what is David doing here? And finally, I, I've wrestled with this for like two or three weeks, going, what do I do with this verse? And it dawned on me this morning, just as I was praying about this and meditating on the, the message and getting ready, all of a sudden the light came on. And uh, I believe that this is the answer here. David is not attempting to be hypocritical in this. You know, do as I do, do as I say, not as I do. I really think that what David is doing here is prescriptive based upon his experience and what he just learned about not to do something. David is encouraging those who read this to be holy in their speech, to truly trust the Lord. I mean, David's first error in the whole thing was going to God's enemies for refuge. Then he just compounded it. This is one of the things that I just love about the study of David. It gives me so much encouragement. Because David is not a plastic saint. He's not this two-dimensional icon that just looks wonderful and everything he does is great. Everything He doesn't do everything great. But sometimes he really, really blows it. And yet, why is he a man after God's own heart? is because for one thing, when he does those things, he repents of them, he turns for them, he strives not to do them again, for the most part. And he, he takes the lessons from that and, and understands what God, how God would have us to live and be. And we see, as he does that, then the victory in his life as the Lord ministers to him and through him. So I find a lot of encouragement for my own life from the uh, checkered history of David. Anyway, holy speech. Keeping ourselves from speaking evil, things that are vile, things that are vulgar, things that are disgusting, things that are contrary to God's holiness, righteousness, and purity, as well as, just a specific example, deceit. It's not telling the truth. Being people of integrity before God and each other. Of course, that doesn't happen a lot, as often as we'd like, I'll put it that way. We struggle with these things because we're fallen folks and we sin, and hopefully we're striving against those sins, but we still fail. So verse 14 um, is an important one. Uh, that's an evidence of our fear of the Lord. Turn away from evil and do good. That's a good description of holy repentance before God when we do sin before Him. And not just firmly holding on to that because we've got something to prove or whatever. No, we the only, it's already been proven. We're fallen, we're sinners. We need, we need to repent. We need to walk before God and strive in holiness before Him. So that fear will show 
as we, again, turn away from our own ways and turn unto His in repentance. Fear and uh, reverence is also seen in uh, the, at the end there, verse 14, of seeking peace and pursuing it. A holy peace is going to be evidence of a proper fear of God. It's been a while, I guess, but I have talked about this, this idea of, of the difference between uh, a ceasefire and a treaty. Have I talked about that in a while? It's been a while, I guess. I'm not seeing any light bulbs coming go. So either it was just forgettable or it's been too long ago. Ceasefires are one thing. But usually what a ceasefire is involved in, in politics and na- among nations and so on, a ceasefire is essentially a period of time when everybody takes a deep breath so they can reload. Nothing has been accomplished. Nothing's been satisfied. Nothing's been resolved. It's just we're tired and beat up and we need a break before we start pummeling each other again. That is not peace. But unfortunately, uh, in the world's eyes, in, in, in international affairs, sometimes politicians declare victory because they got people to stop shooting at each other for a time. That's not the goal. The goal is actual peace. That a treaty, at least the theory is, of course, that a treaty is supposedly taking care of the reasons for the disagreement to begin with. So there actually can be true and lasting peace with no resumption of hostilities. So when David is talking about this in the context of, I'm going to teach you about the fear of God. See, a proper fear of God is not going to be satisfied with only um, taking care of the uh, uh, outward annoyances that we present to Him by our sins. Or I'm going to clean up my act. I'll go to church. I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. I'll put up with these people. (laughs) Or whatever. No, if we properly fear Him, we are going to want to resolve the things that are truly between Him and us. And of course, we can't. Only Christ has done that. That's why He's the Prince of Peace, because He's the one who who, by going to the cross, made peace. Because he took away the reason for the conflict. And that's sin. And of course, this is going to, this is going to flow down and out in our lives, and in our relationships, that we're going to be seeking peace. Genuine peace. Pursuing it. Not just getting somebody else to clean up this or stop that or we stop doing this or doing that because we annoy, we know it annoys somebody else. Not just those external things. Do those, yeah. But getting to the heart of, of, of the conflict is the issue. And we're, if we're walking in a proper reverence of God, we'll do that before Him and others. If we're properly reverencing each other and respecting one another, we'll seek peace in the same manner. Psalm 85, verse 10 says, Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You have to have them both. You can't have peace unless there's righteousness. And if it's constant conflict, there's a righteousness problem somewhere. 
Or rather, there's an absence of righteousness problem somewhere. Isaiah 32, 17 says, The effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. So it's most appropriate for David to be thinking. Uh, you can see he's very consistent in his thought there. And the prophet Isaiah catches that same idea of the necessity of righteousness, which springs out of a proper fear of God, that you desire to walk in accordance with his standard, which is what righteousness is. So even a child, when behaving foolishly, uh, both loves and reveres an earthly parent. The, the, the level of reverence or fear tends to escalate um, with the escalation of sin and rebellion because they know the consequences are going to be escalated. But you and I must, in the same way, both love and revere Yahweh, our Heavenly Father. I read this wonderful statement from a, a, a commentary that I just picked up this past week on the recommendation of someone else, a commentary by a guy named Dale Ralph Davis, 1 Samuel, looking at the heart. And a great, great commentary I'm trying to decide if I'm going to let it go into the library or not. I'm going to read them all first, but uh, they'll probably end up in the library eventually. They made this statement here. Here is David, he says, foolish, desperate, confused. Ah, but it's the stuff the Psalms are made of, he says. So David does not say, I am lucky, but God is for me. He sees men not as frightful, but as flesh. His deliverance from all his fears and all his troubles is the pledge that Yahweh will follow suit for other believers and the basis for his continuing praise. Along with desperation, there is nevertheless praise. I do not mean that we should act foolishly in order that praise may come, but only that we should never forget God's mercies given us even in our foolishness. Quite a profound thought. Once you learn to trust the mercies of God, reverence follows. And all that such holy fear produces, beginning with praise and culminating in a life that is set apart in righteous thinking and action unto Him. And through that, knowing a peace that passes all understanding as we trust in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord God, for the blessing that is ours. Because you are a great God. You deliver us, you hear us, you provide for us. Lord God, help us to reverence you thoroughly, properly, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And let that reverence show itself as in our attitude before you and for each other in in our righteousness, our speech, our repentance from sin, and in the pursuit of your peace through our Savior. Lord, we have such incredible reasons to walk in a holy fear before you. Let us attend to those things. Let it be characteristic of our lives so that we bring you glory.